0: From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Rolat, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. This week, scientists announced promising developments for treating cancer and Alzheimer's disease. Despite such advancements, the biggest obstacles to treating many of the world's most devastating diseases are economics and political will, not science. That's according to neglected tropical disease expert, Peter Hotez.
1: More than warm climate, it's poverty. That's the overriding factor associated with these diseases. These are the diseases of the world's poor.
0: We'll hear from Peter Hotez on today's show. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I discuss this week's headlines about North Korea and Cuba through the lens of a weakened U.S. State Department and diplomatic corps.
2: There's been this concern over the last year that the State Department has in large part been depleted.
0: That's all coming up after the latest news from NPR. This is Worldviews, I'm Suzette Gurlott. Rebecca Cruz, let's talk about an important issue this week in relation to a couple of headlines. So first of all, North Korea, big news that came out this week was that CIA Director Mike Pompeo actually traveled secretly to North Korea, I believe it was over Easter weekend, To kind of set the stage for the upcoming meeting with Trump between Trump and uh, Kim Jong Un. Now we know Mike Pompeo is a nominee for the U.S. State Department. He's not yet been confirmed. It is unclear whether he will be confirmed. So the administration has been stating that this has not been a diplomatic mission, but that at least somebody's been going to kind of set the stage of this meeting. We're not really going to talk about North Korea or this other issue. Let's talk for a second about Cuba uh, because. Raul Castro, uh, of course, Fidel Castro's brother, who took over the presidency of Cuba 12 years ago, is now 86, and this week he just named Miguel Mario Diaz-Canal. Uh, as his successor, as the new leader. 57 years old, he will serve two five-year terms as president and then will take over as well the, the uh, as being chief of the Communist Party. So he's going to be in power at least in, as president until 2028. And then he promises to preserve the Castro legacy from that point on by naming his next successor. So obviously, that is a big story. But the bigger story is, to us, I believe, is not just the headline of what's going on in North Korea and what's going on in Cuba, but this underlying issue and problem, really, with the role the U.S. plays, and particularly regarding its diplomatic core. In both cases, we obviously don't have diplomats in North Korea, and we don't have diplomats in Cuba. In fact, our diplomats have recently, I believe most of them, anyway, have been uh, uh, removed from Cuba. And we don't even have an ambassador in South Korea to help with the North Korean situation. So this raises issues of support services and the way in which the United States can engage in these very significant relationships without a strong diplomatic corps that is engaged every day on these issues like with Cuba, like with North Korea and other places.
2: Yeah, this is the the interesting thing. We've been watching this not just this week, obviously, but this has been going on for the last couple of years, really since uh, Trump came into office. And, you know, if you think about the Department of State where the diplomatic corps is held, this is the oldest government department in the United States. It was created in 1789, originally as the Department of Foreign Affairs. And this has really been the entity within the United States that works with the president and his administration to conduct foreign policy around the world. This is an incredibly important role and function that the Department of State plays. And we have a number of positions in there. There's a, a number of kind of middle-level, career-level diplomats and other officers. And, and they give their careers to this service. They will go to different embassies. They'll have different functions. becomes really important. And then, of course, at the top level are the ambassadors. And this is separated into your career ambassadors and your political appointees. So it's completely normal that every president gets to select some political appointees. These generally go to positions where our interests are fairly set, where our relationship is fairly set. And it is often seen as as more crucial to have an appointee, perhaps a career appointee, probably a career appointee, but someone with great expertise in the area, if you're talking about some of the most important parts of the world. So, a a South Korea, we would think, or or something along those lines. What we saw with President Trump when he came to office... He completely asked for the resignation of every ambassador that had been appointed by Obama, every political appointee from Obama. And he asked them to do that all at the same time. So in past administrations, there was kind of a trickling in, trickling out. There was reasons for these people to stay in office for a little bit longer. But we saw this happen essentially at noon on the day of his inauguration. And so that has meant that these positions have been unfilled. And it's a year and a half, a year later. And there are some of them that are still unfilled, some pretty big ones. You mentioned South Korea, Turkey, the European Union, uh, Jordan, a couple of other positions within the UN that the Department of State fills, Saudi Arabia. And last year, China and India, big partners or big concerns of the United States, had no ambassadors that becomes important those kind of middle rung upper level two we also saw a lot of people resign we saw a lot of people step away and a lot of people were fired and so there's been this concern over the last year that the state department has in large part been depleted what this means is we lose expertise we lose our role perhaps in the government and as issues come up we don't have those people that are there to provide the necessary advice career or political looks like this is going to continue in that direction and that is concerning
0: all right, Rebecca, well, thank you for being here as always. Thank you. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldviews section of KGOU.org or follow us on Twitter at Worldviews KGOU and I'm at Suzette Gorlatt. Next, we'll talk with global health researcher Peter Hotez about a term he helped coin, neglected tropical diseases. I'm Suzette Gorlatt and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grilat, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Peter Hotez is the Dean of Baylor University's National School of Tropical Medicine and an internationally recognized expert on neglected tropical diseases. He spoke with my colleague, Rebecca Cruz, about this diverse group of parasitic and bacterial diseases that affect the poorest of the poor.
2: Peter Hotez, welcome to Worldviews. Thanks for having me today.
0: Well, you are a a medical doctor
2: that focuses on tropical diseases. And let me start by asking what's probably a very obvious question. But what what do we mean by tropical diseases? Is this simply diseases that seem to come about in tropical areas or hot areas? Or or what are we talking about here?
1: Well, historically, that's right. They were the term originated out of uh, European colonization of Africa and Asia, and to some extent, Latin America. And they still today tend to refer to diseases of what we call the global south, meaning Africa, Asian, Latin America. But it's it's really changed a lot. And, and uh, one of the terms that we help and uh, framework that we help develop is this concept of what we call neglected tropical diseases, or NTDs, and these are some of the most common afflictions of people living in Africa, Asian, Latin America, but, you know, really More than warm climate, it's poverty. That's the overriding factor associated with these diseases. These are the diseases of the world's poor, what we used to call the bottom billion, the billion people in the world who live on no money. Um, And an important feature about these diseases, uh, neglected tropical diseases, or NTDs, is they tend to be chronic and debilitating infections. So they not only occur in the setting of poverty, but they reinforce poverty. They make people too sick to go to work. They uh, shave IQ points off of children. They affect pregnancy outcome. So, an important rationale for taking on these diseases is not only for humanitarian reasons, but also economic reasons. By Treating these diseases or preventing them through vaccines is actually a very potent anti-poverty measure.
2: So many of these diseases uh, could be prevented or could be treated under the right circumstances, but because of the socioeconomics in these areas, they have far-reaching consequences. And you call them neglected. Are they neglected because they seem to afflict the poor? What's uh, the reason that this neglected term has become so used?
1: Well, The the term rose out of the Millennium Development Goals. uh, back in the year 2000, when all global leaders as- assembled to UN headquarters to address the bottom billion and look at poverty reduction, there was, a of the eight goals, there was one that was specifically tackling infectious diseases, and that was to combat AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. And, uh, and this is what led to... Uh, President George W. Bush creating PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief that put people on antiretroviral drugs or the Global Fund to fight AIDS. They added tuberculosis and malaria. But there was kind of a flaw in that. The third component of that goal was other diseases. And believe it or not, you didn't see Bono and Angie Jolie uh, taking on uh, other diseases. So we went about and embarked on a branding exercise to identify them and classify them as NTDs or neglected tropical diseases in order to identify them as important targets for intervention.
2: So what are some of these neglected diseases? Are these going to be names that we're going to recognize, or are they so neglected that, that we may not have even heard of them?
1: Uh, I like to call them the most important diseases you've never heard of. So they include diseases such as intestinal roundworm infection or ascoriasis, hookworm infection or schistosomiasis, lymphatic filariasis, which is also known as elephantiasis. The point is every single person living in extreme poverty has at least one of these diseases. So really all of the bottom billion are, are affected. And that Now, according to the World Bank, we have about 750 million people living below the poverty line globally. They're all infected with these parasitic and related neglected tropical diseases.
2: And I imagine as we also see a rise in uh, migration from some of these areas, there's also the potential for some of this uh, to spread.
1: Well, one of the things that we did was uh, help conceive of this package of medicines, and the medicines were being donated by the major pharmaceutical companies. We assemble them together in what's called a rapid impact package that's now been administered to more than a billion people, uh, and the the package can be delivered for only 40 cents a person per year. So it's one of the most cost-effective and widely used public health uh, interventions that that's out there right now. So that's the good news part of the story, but it's. The not-so-good news is like peeling away the layers of an onion, so you solve one problem and then you only have to find another. And now, possibly because of the intervention, most of the world's poverty-related neglected diseases are not necessarily in the poorest, most devastated countries of sub-Saharan Africa. They're certainly there, but on a numbers basis most of the world's NTDs are in the poor living in wealthy countries, in G20 countries. So the G20 economies now account for most of the world's parasitic worm infections, Leishmaniasis and Chagas disease and tuberculosis and dengue and leprosy and, and the list goes on. And And so that's has a lot of policy implications because it says if it's true that it's the poorest of the rich now account for most of these diseases. The policy implication is that if the G20 leaders would redouble efforts for their own vulnerable, neglected populations, we can have a huge impact on getting rid of these diseases.
2: So they're not getting resources in the the G20.
1: Well, for instance, you know one of the real surprising findings of the book is the hidden poverty and disease right here in the United States, especially in the southern United States. The first book I wrote was about these diseases called Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases. The second book, which came out in 2016, is called Blue Marble Health. In the book, I estimate there's 12 million Americans now living with a neglected tropical disease. 12 million in this country. So they're not even rare diseases. They're very common, but they're hidden. They're hidden among the poor. So we have, you know, we're finding hookworm infection in Alabama and probably other southern states. We're finding widespread Chagas disease, transmission among the poor in Texas, uh, leishmaniasis in Texas and even in Oklahoma uh, now. But. It's been really tough to raise awareness about these diseases. So one of the big disappointments we've had is I had a lot of success getting people to care about neglected tropical diseases in the poorest countries of Asia and Africa. But when I talk about neglected diseases of the poor in the U.S., the, the, the lights go out. People, people uh, don't either want to hear the story or uh, don't really, can't really get their arms around it. We, we seem to have a, a lack of care about people who live in extreme poverty in this country.
2: Well, and certainly as the gap between the, the rich and the poor in the country continues to, to widen as we've seen, I would imagine that this will continue to be a problem and perhaps even
1: grow. Well, for example, you know, there's a big push now towards this concept of precision medicine and, and be, being able to use genomic data in order to fine-tune interventions. And I think that's great, um, and it has it's important to advance medical science. But I think it comes at a price as well. I think it could increase the differential between the haves and the have-nots even further.
0: You're listening to my colleague Rebecca Cruz's conversation with Peter Hotez. Coming up, we'll discuss efforts to deploy vaccines in developing nations and examine the anti-vaccine movement in comparatively rich parts of the world. I'm Suzette Grilat, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Grilat, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Today we hear from Peter Hotez about the relationship between poverty and disease. He's the author of many global health books, including Blue Marble Health, in which he examines the shifting distribution of neglected tropical diseases and their presence in the United States. He spoke with my colleague, Rebecca Cruz.
2: Now, one of the things that uh, you did recently, you've had a, a very interesting career, but something that has particularly stood out is that during the Obama administration, you served a special envoy focusing on vaccine diplomacy. Uh, what is vaccine diplomacy?
1: So it's a, it's another term uh, that I helped coin and, and it goes something like this. So one of my, my my most of my day job is spent actually heading a research group that's developing vaccines for neglected tropical diseases. So our research laboratories at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital are focused on uh, developing new vaccines for disease for these neglected tropical diseases. And over, over the last 20 years, we've built up an extraordinary research group of about 50 scientists that are developing these vaccines. So we have the ability to teach others how to do what we're doing, as opposed to if you're running a big multinational pharmaceutical company, you know, a Merck or a Pfizer, you can't walk into Merck or Pfizer and say, teach us how to make a vaccine, but we can. So we're trying to spread this by saying we are now going to work with countries that have no capacity for doing vaccine development and help them to do that. And one of the big hot zones now for the world's neglected tropical diseases is the Middle East, Central Asia, and North Africa. And partly because of the wars and conflict there, they've collapsed the public health infrastructure. So we've had a massive resurgence of neglected tropical diseases in the Middle East, Central Asia, Africa and there's no zero vaccine development capacity in those countries. So I took on this role to help other countries learn how to develop vaccines. And, and it's a concept that really began, in my opinion, uh, when Albert Sabin, who discovered the oral polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. Not many people realize it, but he actually did this jointly with the Soviets at the height of the Cold War. So at a time when tensions between the US and the USSR was at an all-time high, Sabin was sent to the USSR, to the Soviet Union, to actually work with Russian scientists to jointly develop the oral polio vaccine. It was tested on 10 million Soviet schoolchildren, and shown to be safe and effective. And that's what ultimately led to licensure of the oral polio vaccine now being used to eradicate polio worldwide. So the idea is it's two countries setting aside their ideologies to work together for making life-saving interventions and and trying to apply that to a modern-day situation now that we face in the Middle East and elsewhere.
2: So very much diplomacy in the, the sense that we would think about it, just focusing on health. It's so interesting, too, that that you've been looking at uh, some of these diseases in countries, the Middle East, war-torn areas, but the vaccine issue is is a much larger one. And, and it seems to be um, interesting that as as some are pushing to get more vaccines in uh, developing parts of the world, in the developed world or the global north there seems to be a new debate in the last decade or so kind of the anti-vaccine philosophy that's come forward and we've seen diseases that we thought were at least uh, quieted or perhaps eradicated starting to come back a major outbreak of measles recently in Europe what, what's going on here I know you're doing some research on a, a forthcoming book uh, but what's the, the process here and what what's happening
1: so thank you for the question so you're absolutely right you know we've made the last 20 years we've made enormous progress partly through the creation of of this amazing organization called Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. And Gavi was started with $750 million of Gates Foundation funding, and now they get support from a number of countries. And they've made great strides in vaccinating the world's children so that, for instance, measles, uh, which uh, in, in the 1980s was the single leading killer of children in the world. Two million children died every year from measles. Now that's down to 68,000 children dying every year. So an extraordinary uh, decline, more than 90% decline through, through the activities of GAVI and also introducing some new vaccines. That's the good news part of the story. The bad news part of the story is around the time the GAVI was launched, uh, 1998 is the start of this modern-day anti-vaccine movement that makes the phony allegation that vaccines cause autism, even though there's no link between uh, vaccines and autism. And this spread across Europe, and now it's uh, into the United States. So in Europe last year, there were 21,000 measles cases and 35 deaths. And as you point out, last year we had a terrible measles outbreak in Minnesota. We have one ongoing right now in Kansas. And we have now 18 states in the U.S. that allow so-called non-medical exemptions for personal belief or philosophical belief reasons. I believe Oklahoma may be one of them, certainly Texas is. So we've got now pockets where we've got schools where 20, 30, even 40% of kids are not being vaccinated. And um, and we know that as vaccine coverage rates goes down, the first thing we see breakthrough is measles because it's one of the most highly contagious diseases known. So I've been going around the country and internationally saying that we're going to reverse global gains because of this anti-vaccine movement making phony uh, assertions uh, about vaccines.
2: So, just to clarify, the the scientific evidence completely supports the safety of vaccines. There is no link between vaccinations and autism or other other concerns. There's
1: not only no link between vaccines and autism, there's no plausibility. And so, I get involved in this because uh, I'm not only a vaccine scientist, I'm also an autism dad. So, my I have four kids and they're all adults now and my uh, youngest daughter. Uh, Rachel has severe autism and other mental disabilities. And I have a new book coming out at, at the end of the summer called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. And it explains not only the massive evidence showing there's no link between vaccines and autism, but also the fact that we what well, we've learned so much about the, the neurobiology of autism in the last few years, it can show that the changes in the brains of kids on the autism spectrum are be, beginning prenatally in the prefrontal cortex and temporal lobe. Um, Uh, uh, before the baby's born, well before they ever see vaccine. So this is a genetic and epigenetic condition. In fact, we've recently done genetic uh, testing on Rachel, and we found a new... uh uh, a new gene uh, that's been been linked to uh, autism. So this is where we have to focus the emphasis on is uh, doing things like whole exome sequencing on on kids on the autism spectrum to fully understand the extent. And unfortunately, this is being fueled by social media. It's being fueled by a few aggressively anti-vaccine websites that uh, make a lot of phony assertions. But it's very real, and uh, parents, you know, they 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 googled uh, vaccines and they see these anti these anti-vaccine websites spewing out misinformation and and so we're we're I'm making a, uh, a, taking on the arduous task of trying to counteract the, the phony information by writing this book
2: well, what is very real is the the rising increase, as you mentioned, of measles and other diseases that have uh, come about because of a lack of vaccination, so definitely uh, something to, to consider. Well, there are, there are so many things that we could go over today, and unfortunately, we are at an end of time, but thank you so much for the, the important work that you're doing and for spending some some time with us today.
1: Well, thank you again for having me.
0: been listening to an interview with doctor and researcher Peter Hotez. He spoke with my colleague Rebecca Cruz about little-known diseases that primarily affect the poor and how the anti-vaccine movement has eroded public health in some of the world's wealthiest nations. Katie Holland prepares our research and Caroline Halter edited this interview and produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Rolat.